um, because we never really had the courage to have the more difficult debate about how we can increase and fund more medical places within our universities. Right. Yeah. And this is constant short termism and, and immigration is a get out of jail free card, which comes with the added bonus for the new elite. Because if you question it or you challenge it, you can just shut down the debate by calling anybody and everybody a racist. So you're never forced into challenging and confronting this broken economy because, you know, the social um, norms and the, and, and, and the, and the social language is, is set up in a way that any opposition can be the upper middle class chief of a mid-size NGO the same as a hedge fund millionaire? Are they both elite? Are they part of the same elite? And what does it matter? Well, nearly all politics in the West today is anti-elitist. The flavor of anti-elitism differs according to the picture of elite that is painted, but basically we're all populists now. So the question of who is the elite is pertinent, to say the least. British professor Matt Goodwin has created a fair deal of controversy over the past months through his claims as to what and who the new elite are. This new elite is held to dominate public life, leading institutions, and the culture industry in Britain and across the wider Western world. Are they the real elite? What makes them an elite? And in what terms should they be opposed? Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. In this episode, Philip Cunliffe talks to his former colleague, Matt Goodwin from the University of Kent, offering Matt the chance to answer his critics while putting several of these pointed questions to Matt in return. Just a quick note before I hand you over. We had a technical issue in the recording of this episode that we only realized afterwards. The sound quality is not up to scratch. It should still be listenable, but please do accept our apologies. Future episodes should be fine. Okay, enjoy the interview. So, Matt, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, hello to all of your listeners. It's good to be having this uh, timely conversation. So before we talk about the book, um, we've recently had local elections in Britain in which the ruling Tory party have received an exceptional drubbing, losing over a thousand seats and losing control of a swathe of local authorities. I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of the results and your read of them. Yeah, so the first thing to say is, uh, as any seasoned political analyst will tell you, take local elections with a big pinch of salt. Their predictive power is not as strong as some of our academic colleagues would have you believe. But nonetheless, were these elections to be applied to a national context, then the Labour Party finished about eight points ahead in the national vote. So 
enough to emerge as the largest party at the next general election, albeit without a majority. Uh, the Conservatives, meanwhile, finished on around 25-26% of the national vote, which would be one of their lowest in, in recent history. But crucially, the Conservatives are now being hit on two flanks simultaneously. They are losing support in the southern more affluent middle-class areas to Labour or the Liberal Democrats. Um, And they are also now losing support in the most strongly pro-Brexit areas of the country, including in Northern England. So my argument is is one that I, I also make in the book, which is that today's Conservative Party is now watching the post-Brexit electorate that it put together essentially be blown apart. And I think this speaks to the failure of conservatism to embrace and uh, really respond to the people who have been voting for it since 2016. And I know we'll get into a lot of that, but essentially we're heading towards a Labour government. Yeah, that's... um... I mean, yeah, I suppose that was my read of the situation and everything you say makes sense. Um, We'll talk a bit more directly about the new elite and how that factors into Labour Party politics and um, appeals to various constituencies. Um, But before we do that, I was wondering if you could lay out for us why you think um, the rest of the world should care about British politics in particular. Now, I raise it because, you know, you often hear this argument that since Britain's vote for Brexit, and given its relative economic decline, it's essentially, you know, kind of, um, or increasingly at least irrelevant to the rest of the world. So why should, you know, what is what is it about what's happening in Britain that matters to the larger world? Well, I think for listeners who are not in Britain, a lot of what is taking place here really does have global implications. Firstly, we're talking about a country that is grappling with how to respond to the rise of political rebellions um, that we often refer to as populism, but but which are reflected in rebellions taking place around the world, uh, from Donald Trump to Georgia Maloney in Italy. So there is a question here about how do Western democracies respond to these political insurgents? And what lessons can we draw from that? I think, secondly, Britain matters because conservatism is going through a period of reinvention around the around the world whether you look at France Italy America um, Australia we're all having a very similar debate about what is left and right but what is conservatism in the aftermath of the 2010s um, where is this ideology going how is it changing and I think we, we've also got a parallel discussion around the future of the centre-left. Now, if we'd had this conversation maybe five years ago, ten years ago, we'd be much more sceptical, perhaps, about social democracy and centre-left politics. But what we can see, I think, in Britain is a centre-left party that, you know, if we're right and we are heading into some kind of Labour-led coalition or Labour majority, then that is also going to go down in history as one of the most impressive electoral recoveries that has basically ever happened. I mean, at the last general election, as some of your listeners will will remember, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party were reduced to their worst results since 1935. The fact that we're even talking 
about the possibility of a Labour government next year is a remarkable story in politics. And I think it speaks to the broader question of how centre-left parties can get back on track. And intertwined with all of that is this story, ultimately, about the ruling class that has come fundamentally unstuck from the rest of the country that surrounds it. And that debate is a global debate. And we'll get into the the more intellectual side of that in in a second. But I don't think anybody who is a serious observer or analyst of contemporary politics can look at Britain and not see parallels with debates that are taking place in every Western democracy. Yeah, no, that's that's great stuff. So to get to the meat of the the issue and the core of the thesis, so who or what is the new elite, and can you describe a t- typical figure from this elite for us? Yeah, so so essentially, what I've tried to do in the book is explain why Britain has ended up here. What is it that's happened over the last? half century that can really explain all of this political turbulence, which really culminated in what I've basically referred to as a trilogy of political revolts. You get the the rise of Nigel Farage and populism between really 2004 and 2014. You then get the big vote for Brexit in 2016. You then get the rise of Boris Johnson and what we thought at the time was a realigned conservatism which breaks down Labour's red wall and becomes very successful at the 2019 general election. So why did this happen? My argument in a nutshell is that what we have seen in Britain and many other Western democracies is the rise of a group that I call the new elite. They are elite university graduates, uh, in Britain's case, from Oxbridge, Oxford or Cambridge, from Russell Group Universities. They tend to have parents in the managerial professional classes. They tend to come from families that are economically secure, if not affluent. They tend to live in the big cities and the university towns where increasingly the the elite graduate class um, congregate. They tend to marry other members of that class. They tend to work in professional, managerial or creative positions. Um, They tend to uh, work alongside other Uh, graduates who look like them, come from similar backgrounds, have similar values. But crucially, unlike an earlier elite that I I suspect we'll also talk about, the new elite have basically spent the last decade or so drifting very strongly to the cultural left. They've become incredibly, I would argue, increasingly defined by their social liberalism if not their commitment to radical progressivism, which which makes them as well quite distinctive from an earlier elite in, in Western societies. And that essentially is how I would define this group. And when people say, well, give me some examples, and I have done in some of the newspaper articles I've written about the book, I just wanted to put on record, you know, I, I, I've been quite hesitant to make it personal because I think the moment you make it personal and point to individuals, yeah. you, you tend to lose the intellectual exchange that, that you know, all authors are really looking for. But you know, if you're pressing me on it to say, well, give me some examples, I'm really talking about many of the people who chair public bodies, who become university vice-chancellors, who become members of parliament, who become directors of the BBC, who increasingly um, occupy 
um, senior positions within the creative, cultural and media class uh, who tend to be pretty closely entwined, not only in terms of their educational background, but also in terms of their their values and their tendency to exclude people who do not share their values and whose voice is not represented in those institutions. And the reaction to the book, which which was very interesting and revealing, and also from a personal point of view, quite enjoyable, um, was was really about many members of this group that I'm pointing to lining up one by one to deny that actually they have any economic, social or cultural power in the country and who, who really lost, who really clearly hadn't actually read the book but said, well, look, you know, we've had a conservative government for 13 years. How can you talk about this new elite? When in actual fact, what I'm saying is that the new elite have essentially dominated and defined the zeitgeist in which any government operates. Uh, They have defined the social norms, they have defined the contours of debate, they have defined the institutions, they have defined the way that we talk about who we are in a way that constrains and shapes any government, whether on the left or the right. Uh, So they wield immense power and and they've accumulated more power over the years. And, and to anybody who is an academic or an avid reader who is listening to this podcast, you will also know that what I'm saying, in a way, is not actually all that original. I mean, you can run a, a thread from, from my argument through the likes of, of David Brooks, Michael Lind, yeah. Daniel Bell, Roger Scruton, David Goodhart, among many others. Um and and I was always concerned with this with this book coming out. I was always concerned that one of the criticisms would be, well, we we've already talked about the new elite. When when in actual fact, <laughs> the main reaction was a sort of sense of denial among many members of that group who said, well, you know, we are not a cohesive class. We don't exist. So it, in a, in essence, it was a very interesting month um and one that i think underlines the extent to which actually many of the people who do hold immense power um often don't really comprehend just how much power they have so on this point about the disavowal of that power and i kind of want to build on the picture that you provided and kind of develop it as a counterpoint so if we imagine say a millennial member of this group, an archetypal member of this group, and say they have maybe two humanities degrees from Russell Group Universities, say their salary has been stagnant for quite a few years since leaving university, they might be saddled with significant student debt, um, and I, you know, they might um, suspect their degree was, is redundant, um, and they, you know, probably perhaps they never even exerted themselves a great deal for it. Say that their political experience might have been sitting on a student union committee or doing lots of stuff on social media. Perhaps they attended an anti-fee student demo, and perhaps they were pulled into the Corbyn Labour Party and you know have drifted away since. And let's say they rent kind of small cramped accommodation in an expensive urban centre. Um, they're bumping up to what would have been traditionally been childbearing or child rearing years. Um, their long-lived boomer parents have their wealth tied up in a house, you know, that they want to keep on living in. And so I suppose, you know, would it be a surprise that this person, this kind of archetypal person of um, 
depicted. Is it a surprise that they feel that a promise kind of has been broken um, or some kind of social compact has broken and they've lost out, that they're aggrieved and that they would then struggle to accept this badge that you want to put on them and that they don't feel that they're elite at all? Well, firstly, it depends what that person is doing in terms of occupation and in terms of economic position. I mean, there is an argument that um, a lot of people within the broad group that I'm referring to tend to choose low income but high influence positions. And 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 you know, this stereo this this example that we're we're talking about might not necessarily even be somebody who's in what I would call the new elite. But there are lots of people, for example, who might um, go through the educational channels, might come from, you know, the families that I'm referring to, might live in the cities and university towns who may um, end up, for example, not necessarily going into high-paid jobs, but might go into low-pay but high-influence positions, perhaps working you know, as senior members of think tanks, perhaps uh, school teachers, perhaps university, uh, university lecturers, becoming what, what others might refer to as the epistemic class, the people who do wield power by determining the foundations of knowledge, by determining what's acceptable and what isn't, by determining the contours and the frame of debate. They might go into journalism, media. They might take internships at the BBC or political magazines. They might um, essentially become gatekeepers of the public conversation. Um, And so I think there was a... there was a sort of, sort of mis- misinterpretation of sorts. I mean, I estimate that, you know, the new graduate elite really to represent no more than about 20%, 25% of the country. And within that, I talk about a subgroup of, of kind of radical progressives who, had, who, who are estimated by a number of studies to represent about 15% of that group. Um, and, you know, they don't often work in high income positions. They, they often work in the knowledge economy, the creative industries, the cultural institutions, but still do ultimately determine the, the norms and the values that tend to permeate and dominate, dominate the national conversation. And, and that is a source of power. I understand why people are instinctively skeptical of of the argument that something outside of the economy and housing might also be a source of power. But I would argue the new elite have been incredibly successful over the last 20, 30 years at redefining and reshaping who we are around their values while also silencing the voice of others. Um, and, And that's not only been, and it has partly been economic. I mean, I do talk extensively in the book about this group also dominating the epicenters of our country's economic life. I mean, they dominate the areas that have had the highest rates of economic growth, that have had the most buoyant housing markets, you know, the Southeast, the commuter belt, Oxford, Cambridge, Brighton, Bristol, you know, all of the areas that that have have experienced um, some of the strongest rates of growth. So it was never a kind of either or, but, but, but they do also wield this immense social and cultural power too. Um, and they're very, either consciously or not, but they're very adept at consolidating that power through the choices they make. I mean, if you look at the 
percentage of elite graduates that marry within their group, it's about 60%. They're the most likely to do so. They're the most likely to move into London within six months of graduating from Oxbridge or Russell Group. Students with a first class or 2-1 are living within London. Um, you know, so they, they, they are constantly consolidating um, their power, economic and, and cultural capital. Um, and, and they're not always, you know, high earners. You know, they, 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 they are also defined by their values um, and, and by their luxury beliefs. And, you know, I'm sort of slightly riffing on some of the arguments that Rob Henderson and others have made about the difference between the new elite and the old elite, that, that, that there is a distinction and, it, and it's an important one. The old elite were chiefly, or the old middle class, were chiefly dominated and defined by by wealth, by titles, by um, hereditary wealth, by estates, and saw those material goods as a source of status and a source of recognition within the within the economy. The new elite, um, partly, um, you know, will also inherit quite a lot of that through their boomer parents and so on, and the intergenerational wealth transfer that is looming on the horizon. But they also are really defined as much by these cultural signifiers that have become an important marker of status for yeah. for the for that group that if you align yourself with the new elite and their beliefs you are um ultimately prioritized in the public conversation and considered to be high status if you challenge those beliefs reject those beliefs uh, you are seen as being low status or yeah. a stigmatized or um, uh, outcast and a pariah and you can see how that system operates almost daily on social media so it's um, it's both cultural and economic power uh, that defines this group um, and as I say you know one of the most influential accounts I mean Chris Lash has obviously talked a great deal about about the very same group but also I think David Brooks's discussion of the consolidation and, and how this group were, were, were much more aggressive than he anticipated in his first book on them, which was uh, the, the, the Bobos in Paradise. And, and in a later piece in The Atlantic, made the argument that he massively underestimated how ruthless the managerial professional classes would be at, at retaining their position in society and excluding others. And this became especially visible in the aftermath of 2016. And I think we've had exactly the same thing take place in Britain, a kind of real pushback against any challenge to their position of power. Yeah. Um, so to talk about kind of how some of this politics or how some of this, um, how some of the new elite plays out in formal politics, I thought it might be useful to touch on the SNP which um, our listeners, some of our listeners will know at least, has been um, struggling since the resignation of their leader, Nicola Sturgeon. Now, you've, you've written about the travails of um, the Scottish National Party for the London Times, and listeners will find the article in the show notes. But I was wondering if perhaps you could tell us about how what's happened with the Scottish National Party um, captures some of these pathologies, because their membership in Carter kind of overlaps quite significantly with the figures that you've talked about as the new elite. Well, I think the SNP is a great example of um, radical progressivism applied to contemporary politics, where you have an activist class that, that is often pretty highly educated, has really doubled down on, on the values of, of 
of this ideology and, and you know, whatever your preferred word, I use radical progressivism. Others refer it to refer to it as woke or, or radical social liberalism. What we're talking about essentially is an ideological belief system which prioritizes racial, sexual and gender minorities, usually over the wider majority group, which is skeptical, if not hostile towards the objective scientific method and which fundamentally divides societies into a very crude binary um, uh, uh, division between oppressor and victim groups uh, based on their fixed identities. And I think that's essentially how I see radical progressivism. And the SNP really went all in on this ideology, especially over the gender recognition reform bill, which, um, which basically sought to allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without any medical supervision um, and was another example of, I think, the ratchet effect within social liberalism that will, is, is, is constantly searching for cultural barriers and boundaries to try and break down. And with the SNP, I think what you saw there was not only, you know, a sort of undiluted version of this, but also the way in which it massively overreached in that only about 20% of Scots supported the um, uh, the the call to give 16-year-olds the right to legally change their gender, 80% opposed it. But more fundamentally, when you ask Scots, look, what do you want to do at the moment? Most Scots say, I want to tackle the cost of living. I yeah. want to improve the healthcare system. And I want to improve transport and public services. When you then ask them, what do you think the SNP want to do? They say, oh, the SNP just wants independence and, and uh, wants to reform gender. Yeah. So what you saw was really an activist group become disassociated from the values of the wider majority. Now, that is symbolic of what I'm talking about in the book, which is, you know, if you look at the latest British Social Attitude Survey data, which everybody can see. I mean, one of the interesting things about the reaction to the book, by the way, is I've seen a lot of personal criticism, but I've not seen a single serious piece of analysis explaining why the thesis is wrong. Because I would suggest if you anybody who's familiar with the survey data knows that, that the elite graduate class have basically drifted into a world of their own on a lot of these issues. And some of the issues, by the way, I didn't even mention in the book. I mean, I mentioned the, the obvious ones, which are immigration, national identity, yeah. Europe, um, Britishness. But if you look at, at gender, if you look at history, if you look at um, uh, you know what we should teach children in school, on all those issues too, radical progressives are in a world of their own. And we just had another example, actually, since I released the book, which was people's views towards the government's policy or proposed policy of processing asylum applications in Rwanda, um, you know, which is a very controversial policy. But but if you ask most voters out there, a plurality will say, on balance, they support it. If you ask radical progressives, it's like 85, 90% are completely opposed to it. Yeah. So it's another example of where this group that is disproportionately dominating I would argue the SNP, the Labour Party, and many creative industries and institutions 
are really out of step with where many voters are. And obviously for Americans who are listening, there are obvious parallels with the debates they've had over, you know, po- very unpopular policies like defund the police. You know, the reason um, Hispanic Latino voters are drifting rightwards and are undermining the claim that demography is destiny, which is very popular in the Democrat Party until recently, is precisely because of the unpopularity of many of these radical progressive positions combined with the legacy of COVID, that group that, you know, Hispanic Latino voters being very anti-lockdown as well. Um, Now, what happens in Britain over the next 50 years? Well, here's a hypothesis. You keep pushing radical progressivism. You keep undermining the family. You keep diluting and dismantling social structures. I bet you right now, British Muslims, British Hindus, British Sikhs, some of the fastest growing groups of voters in the country are not going to go along with that for five minutes. The same trends that we can see in America, I suspect we'll end up seeing in Britain. And this too is a case of where radical progressives are overreaching um, because they are fundamentally radicals. It's a radical activist group. So you've mentioned, you've touched upon some of your intellectual forebears, and I wanted to um, kind of push you a bit more on that, Um, because as you say, I mean, some of these themes have been picked up by other thinkers and analysts. Um, You had Somewheres and Anywheres, David Goodhart, Michael Lintz Overclass. Um, You also got, you know, Thomas Piketty's analysis of those whom he called the Brahmins, who've taken over the old working class social democratic parties. Uh, Catherine Hughes' analysis of virtue hoarders. You know, as well as figures further back, such as Christopher Lash, who you mention as an influence in your book. So, I mean, I know that's a wide range of people, but I was wondering if you could maybe just um, summarize what is what you're bringing to the discussion of the new elite that's distinct from this kind of intellectual legacy that you've cited as an influence. Yeah, I think also, you know, we can go back even further. I mean, I, I, I was always particularly influenced um, doing my postdoc um, PhD work by Daniel Bell. I, for me, the cultural contra- contradictions of capitalism was a really seminal book, and I was just very influenced by him and his writing. And I think he was just very ahead of the, you know, his time in foreseeing the rise of what he called the adversary, the adversary class. You know, and he pointed to how essentially the the elite were undermining American society by embracing. You know, very different ideological outlook and I think you know that was in the early 1970s I think if you looked at say people like Chris Lash and you know writing on his deathbed in 1990-91 you know again you know I often think um, what he would have made of the last 20 years in global politics because I think if you go back now and you read the culture of narcissism or revolt of the elites or um, haven in the heartless world about the decline of family or the attack on family, I think he would be. I think he would feel completely vindicated by the events of the, especially the last decade. Michael Lind, I think as well. Um, you know, Michael is somebody who's very interesting and not really being easy to locate on the political spectrum. You know, he's. I think you know very. Um, he's very leans very left on a number of issues and. And there are very strong overlaps with Michael's argument and my own, contrary to what some of 
my critics would say I completely um, buy the argument about the loss of trade union membership as being and the, and the decline of trade unions as being particularly negative for um, uh, the sort of the working class, the loss of voice within the political marketplace, the the way in which the new elite when it comes to economics, partly an argument Piketty makes that it, it's not that they don't lean to the left economically because often they do. The key point is that they routinely subordinate their economic preferences behind their cultural preferences. Yeah. And that, and Piketty doesn't quite go as far as saying that, but that's a logical implication of what he is saying. And um, and I think where I go further than, than those accounts is really picking up on the way in which now it's not simply that that this group is more socially liberal, which, you know, has been noted for a a long time, but that essentially their education-based identity has now become fundamentally part of who they are, while their beliefs have become a crucial source of status for that group. And I do, it's very easy for people to say, well, you know, woke is a meaningless word and and yeah. it's just a, a word that conservatives or right-wing culture warriors use to distract uh, people from what's really going on. But the radicalization of the cultural left empirically has been happening. And Zach Goldberg uh, and Richard Hanania and Eric Kaufman and others have documented it in detail. Yeah. So, so the most interesting development in, in contemporary politics, one of the most interesting developments being the radicalization of the cultural left is something that I don't think those even those earlier books were fully were fully able to to say with some certainty was happening because it's been so recent. It's partly been in response to to Trump and to Brexit and to the rise of populism. But basically, white graduate liberals have not only drifted left politically but culturally. And if you look at the survey data on where they are in America or where they are in Britain relative to the average voter. You know, they are often so far adrift um, that I'm sort of struggling to see how they can find common ground again. You know, the narrative that's emerged, for example, after Brexit, which is, well, everybody likes immigration now, it's just not true. I mean, it's, it's, it's a narrative for the new elite, right, which is, oh, well, we lost on Brexit, but hey, guess what? Everybody's come over to our argument. Well, if you look at graduates, and if you look, in particular within that group of high-income graduates, and yeah, sure, they love immigration. They always have. But if you look at working-class non-graduates and pensioners, completely not the case. About 60 70% say, can you please change this political economy because it's not working for me? Um, so I think that, you know, obviously I haven't spelled out all the people who have influenced um, the book, but I think it's pretty obvious to, to people who are well-read and, who can trace some of those arguments. And as I say, one of my fears ahead of the book's release was that people would say, well, you know, lots of other people have made similar arguments, but but it goes to show, and this is, you know, within the context of this podcast, so I can't say it's between us because I know it's going to go out publicly, but what it revealed to me actually was just how little our media class read. I mean, that, that, that that was the real thing that came home with me. Yeah. came home to me during that month you know i was really confident that somebody would say hey this is chris lash 2.0 right yeah. which which i take as a compliment but um actually what they said was you know wow this argument is you know so out there you know 
no one's ever made it before. <laughs> so, well, hey, I've got like 10 books I'd like to introduce you to. <laughs> yeah. No, indeed. Um, and on, on that, in fact, so you've mentioned kind of how some of this has been, some of this radicalization has been in response to populism. And I mean, you cut your teeth, your academic career began as a scholar of populism. And you also made kind of, in your earlier books, you've made arguments about um, what's distinctive and new about the populism we're seeing at the moment. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that, because something that's familiar in populism studies and in, um, in that kind of scholarship is we've had um, populists making inroads into old kind of working class and social democratic voter base for a long time, particularly in Europe, in places like Austria and France, reaching back into the 1980s. And you even had, um, you know, Ross Perot's kind of proto-Trumpist third party attempt in the early 1990s. So I was wondering if you could just briefly summarize kind of what is new about the most recent version of these ballot box revolts that seem to have become endemic in Western democracies in recent years. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that they're just a lot more successful. Um, I think if you just look at what has happened to national populism, which I would call it over the last 20 years, is that firstly, it's consolidated, it's become a major permanent player in the political system. My previous book, uh, National Populism, basically argued that this was a distinctive ideological movement that was, you know, had its own tradition, its own history, uh, but that it was going to remain as a permanent player in the political system. And again, I mean, I was sort of roundly criticised for making that argument. Um, but actually, what we've seen since then is is exactly that. You've had a consolidation. Le Pen is now a credible contender for the presidency. You would never have said that in in the to, to the two thousands or the nineteen nineties. I mean, Jean Marie Le Pen might have reached the second round, but nobody ever seriously thought he'd beat Chirac and become president. It's entirely plausible now that Marine Le Pen becomes president of France. Um, we've seen populist breakthrough in Spain, Portugal, Italy, in a way that they just would not have done previously. I mean, Gene Franco Fini, Umberto Bossi, yeah, I mean, they were successful, but not like Giorgio Maloney, right? I mean, it's a completely different spectrum. Donald Trump, I mean, versus Ross Perot is another great example. It's entirely plausible that Trump wins twice. Ross Pro was, you know, influential, but never, never really came close. So they've become more successful. I think ideologically they've changed too. I think, you know, I'm making generalizations, but an earlier wave of populists were basically comfortable with the market, more or less. Um, you know, they were partly shaped by the Cold War. They were partly shaped by their strong opposition to communism. Um, I think increasingly national populists have become economically protectionist. In some areas, you can see it in the uh, positioning around China and the US, but you can also see it in, what, in how Le Pen talks about globalization, in how the Swedes now in, are talking increasingly about adjusting migration policies so that they can try and incentivize companies to invest in, in domestic Swedish workers. Um, I think they've also become much more fixated, not only with big tech, but also gender identity theory, and also Islam as a pressing threat to the West, whereas an earlier generation, as I say, were more preoccupied with communism and immigration in general. But I think if you look at some of the recent papers that we've had in political science, you know, we now talk about the, the rise of, paradoxically, liberal nativism and the, the way in which growing numbers of um, 
you know, LGBT you know, voters are supporting people like Le Pen because they now feel, and these are not insignificant numbers, by the way, about 20% in some cases of these of those communities, because they feel that their hard-won rights are now being challenged by the rise of Islam uh, within Western society. So so that too is a change. And I think electorally, they've, they've cast a bit of a wider net. You know, it's not just the working class anymore. They've also made inroads into parts of the middle class. They've made inroads not just into the industrial heartlands, but they are beginning. You know, if you look at, say, the, the evolution of the, the populist vote in Italy, you know, they're, they're reaching into into quite different groups now um, in a way that they, 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 they weren't previously. So I think that increasingly they're going to push through potentially a, redefin- a, a reinvention of conservatism. I think, you know, what you're seeing is the centre-right being squeezed like it really hasn't been squeezed before. And I think this is going to, or not in contemporary history, and this is going to, um, you know, have, have some, some very strong, profound um, effects uh, on our politics. And just on the, the literature on populism, because this is an important point, I started my career in, um, in, in the academic study of populism and what became apparent to me very early on, and which is rather ironic given some of the criticism that's labelled at me, is that that is a very openly partisan literature. Anyone who's gone through the study of populism yeah. will instantly know what I mean, which is that the conferences and the workshops and the gatekeepers and the scholars, it is a very, very political literature. And if you are essentially challenging some of the uh, norms within that literature, uh, then it becomes a very difficult place to work. And so in the last five years, you've seen a growing number of scholars I think just either go and do their independent work um, or just move into into different research fields because unless you're buying into the notion that you know fundamentally these movements are a threat to liberal democracy and that their supporters are you know extremist and um, you know uh, somehow pathological um, or there's something wrong with them. Um, if you're seen to make an argument or to express any empathy for those voters, and I'm, you know, very much more empathetic than some of my colleagues, you know, then it's not an easy place to work uh, as an academic. So that has also been interesting. I think many people have have felt a growing sense of um, uh, a sense that the wider trends in society are moving against them. You know, these movements are becoming more successful. They are increasingly shaping some of the debate. Um, and I think that's, you know, understandably alarmed a lot of scholars. But I think it's also revealed the extent to which that literature wasn't actually really explaining that much. Uh, so I think that's also been part of the journey to, uh, to, to this debate that we're having today. Yeah, I mean, so this is something you've been criticised on, is for going native, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you began as, you know, kind of, I've seen it put on Twitter by some of your interlocutors, your critics. You began as a critic of the new right with the UK Independence Party, but you've shifted to being something like a sympathiser or, or an advocate. Um, so how would you respond to that criticism? Well, I certainly wouldn't say I was an advocate, I, but, I, but I would say that um, I have obviously been shaped by 
in my background in communities that are very similar to the ones that have been rebelling against um, against the against the established parties. So, you know, whether it's in regard to Brexit or whether it's in regard to you know the UK Independence Party and the people who are in it, what was being written about those movements by people in in this in the new elite was not really what I recognised. Um, not only through my research, but also my life experience. I mean, you've got to remember that unlike the vast majority of people that work in these areas, I spent 10 years interviewing and meeting people in these movements, like sitting in their living rooms, going to the party events. I mean, I was a, I was a a field researcher. I was in the field constantly. And for a lot of people in that literature, you know, they don't do that. You know, their, their version of research is downloading, you know, the latest survey, crunching numbers and yeah. and deriving their insights based on what they read in The Guardian or whatever. <laughs> and so from my perspective, like I knew early on, you know, the, 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 the suggestion that, you know, UKIP was like an extremist far right party was just like ridiculous when you met the people in it, when you knew them and, and, and you, you'd been in that world and you, you understood but yes, there were definitely, definitely xenophobes, hundred percent, and probably more than a few racists. But as a movement, as a, as a whole, when seen in the whole, yeah. the grievances that were pushing many people into that were grievances that were pretty obvious: that globalization had gutted their communities, that mass immigration had basically served big business and had not, incent- you know, big business had not been incentivized to invest in workers to increase their pay to increase their conditions, and that we had a political and media class that was simply not interested in giving those communities a voice. And as we went through the Brexit referendum, you know, the reaction to that, I found to be appalling um, and to be very, uh, um, you know, very revealing of the class prejudice that is permitted among the new elite in a way, you know, a prejudice that would never be permitted were it to involve any other group in society. And and that was definitely, you know, an awakening moment. But so too was the academic debate that we've all had, and I think some more interestingly than others, but about the failures of liberalism. And I think the way in which, you know, um, over the last 15 years or so, I've just become more keenly aware of the way in which a hyper-liberalism, what John Gray would call a hyper-liberalism, is really no longer pulling us together, but actively pushing us apart, is hollowing out communities, is basically serving a sort of loose alliance of the new graduate elite and big business. And I've increasingly become very sceptical of that. And now in the world like academia, where essentially, you know, a lot of that is violating, you know, major taboos, um, you know, or, or established norms, it, it, you know, you see then the floodgates of criticism open from people who, you know, clearly are, you know, have a vested interest in, in the status quo. Um, and also, to be frank, as you know, better than most, or, you know, when you are public in academia, that tends to attract 
critics as well, or as David Butler, the late sophologist, the godfather of election studies, you know, once reminded me the reason that almost every academic who's ever gone public never ended up getting a chair at a prestigious university is because academics instinctively and instantly loathe anybody that is in that public debate, partly because they really want to be. Yeah. Sometimes they, they, they haven't, you know, as David Butler once said, you know, they would do it if they could do it. But, but also I think there's an extra layer in this of politics and, and, and being seen to be violating the sacred values yeah. that, that, that dominate, you know, the academy. But I was also very deliberate. I mean, I was very, I made a very conscious choice of not saying anything publicly until I was a professor because I just, you know, as, as, as you know, you know, if you, if you hold a contrarian view of Brexit from a left perspective, from a right perspective, whatever, uh, and you're a lecturer or on a fixed-term contract, then you know you, you know you are damaging your career prospects. You are damaging your the likelihood of publishing in top-tier journals. You are damaging the likelihood that you will get research grants. You are damaging the likelihood that you will be held in high esteem within the academy. Now, if you get to a point in your career where you genuinely don't care about that, you know maybe you've made prof, maybe you value other things outside of your career. Or maybe you are having an impact which essentially allows you to balance out the criticism, right? Yeah. Um, unless you, you've got some of that, and financial resilience too, by the way, right? Yeah. That will allow Indeed, you yeah. to survive cancellation attempts because those things are real. Unless you've got that, like you're not going to say anything remotely contrarian. I mean, yeah. I, I literally had, I would say, somewhere in the region of 200 emails since Brexit since a vote for Brexit from junior colleagues and some established profs that, you know, some famous profs who say, you know, I, they wish they could say things publicly, but they, for different yeah. reasons, won't do it. Yeah. And that is why I think more generally this debate has morphed into are universities sufficiently protecting and promoting viewpoint diversity? Um, and in the aftermath of a lot of that criticism, you know, I and a few others went all in on the, the higher education free speech bill, which the Conservatives were promoting, because, you know, having watched a number of academics from Kathleen Stock, who's a gender critical scholar, to Nigel Bigger, who was a historian uh, who presented a different view of British Empire, Britain's Empire, to Noah Carl, who was a junior uh, academic at Cambridge, who went to a conference on intelligence and, and, and genetics. Um you know, having watched all those people be harassed or chased out of university and to then see the vast majority of my colleagues sit on Twitter saying there was no issue with higher education yeah. has convinced me of the need to support that bill, to help de design that bill and, and push it through Parliament. And that hasn't really helped with my cause in the popularity stakes, but it's impact, right? And it's impact. Yeah. And for those of us who actually care about students having a sufficient exposure to ideas and viewpoints, you know, then I, I do think that piece of legislation will, will make a difference. I was historically loath to want the state to intervene. Like I, you know, for back ten years, I would have opposed it strongly, but I came to the conclusion that that universities will not reform themselves, um, which is how I ended up there. So that also, I think, inflamed some of the issues. No, indeed. And I mean, you know, I'd agree with a lot of what you said.
I wanted to put another criticism to you that I've seen made, um, and this one is from an article in The Economist, and again, our listeners will find it in the show notes. But this piece says that your tale is essentially kind of a, a story, a Brexit story. So it's a tale from the Brexit years when you had a working class party captured by the new elite in, in the, um, with, the, with the Labour Party under Corbyn, but that this argument kind of sits uneasily now with precisely what you started out with um, when you started talking here was about the scale of the swing to Keir Starmer's Labour Party in the polls and also in the recent local elections. So that how would you marry, I suppose the question is, how would you marry your analysis of the the kind of the, how the this new elite has been a, has been a weight on left-wing kind of centre-left parties with the fact that Keir Starmer seems to be, um, you know, he's going to, like you say, Labour will form the next government in the UK. Well, all, all politics is supply and demand. Um, my argument is 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 very straightforward and simple, which is that had these voters, as they were in twenty nineteen, been supplied with a politics and a party that was serious in mobilising opposition to the status quo and a different economic and political settlement then politics would look radically different and Keir Starmer and Labour would be nowhere near power, would be nowhere near power. You can see that in the data. Nobody is enthusiastic about Keir Starmer and very few people are enthusiastic about the Labour Party. There is no zeitgeist, in essence, around the Labour Party. What's essentially happened is that millions of people who do not share the values of the new elite thought they were getting an alternative settlement through the politics of Brexit and partly through the 2019 general election and Boris Johnson, who was always an imperfect vessel, like Nigel Farage, like Brexit. I mean, none of these things were were perfect vessels. But but what they did offer an opportunity around is is pushing back against hyper-globalisation, pushing back against mass immigration and pushing back against a loss of voice for millions of people in the institutions. And that disillusionment, those drivers are still are still there, which is why I think the 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 big winner in all of this will not be Keir Starmer and Labour. The big winner in this will be apathy. It will be working class, non-graduate, older voters, not bothering to vote at all at the next yeah. election, and sitting sitting it out. Um, you know, and I, I think in my mind, you know, a bit. To go back to an earlier argument about you know, Michael Lind and his argument about the overclass, in a way, focusing on elections and party politics is is almost the wrong focus. In that, what we're talking about is a ruling class that is as visible on the right as it is the left. And so, when a number of prominent journalists said, "You know, what is this new elite? We've had a conservative government for thirteen years." Well, my argument would be, "Have we? Have we?" I mean, seriously, what? Name me one single conservative thing the British Conservative Party has done over the last 13 years except lead us out of the European Union, which 
by the way, almost didn't happen because a big chunk of that party <laughs> tried to stop it. Yeah. You look at a whole array of policy areas from immigration to family to um, moderating the effects of hyperglobalization to gender, small boats. Um, the conservatives, I think, have been completely reshaped by this new political orthodoxy. Um, and that's why, what you know, when Boris Johnson came into power, he had 76% of Brexit voters. It's a remarkable statistic. 76% of Brexit voters. The Conservatives now have about 33%. You know, they utterly lost that coalition they put together in 2019. Oh. And, and the fascinating thing also about that is, is if, you, if you look at what those Brexit voters wanted, you know, and you know this and you've written about it in your, in your book, um, which, is, which is brilliant, um, you know, what they wanted was the total opposite of what Liz Truss and really Boris Johnson gave them, right? If you put Truss and Johnson together, it was basically a continuation of, you know, London-centric, big business-friendly, high immigration, accepting of globalization. It was all of that, you know, except we were outside the EU. And so what happened is then that support just completely collapsed. And where Starmer is picking up, you know, is he's not really picking up a positive endorsement or an instrumental endorsement of, the, of Labour. He's picking up partly rejection of, of Truss and Johnson and Partygate and the, you know, the, the scandals that dominated number 10. Um, but he's also galvanising university graduates, millennials. You know, Labour's still got 80 90% of minority ethnic voters, which is a big deal. Um, uh, and they're going to make some gains in Scotland because of the SNP um, declining. So there is, there is no pro-positive Labour endorsement. It is, it is really Labour feeding off the failures of, of this project. And the end story will be the failure of British conservatism to reinvent, you know, and that, that was always Andrew Gamble's point post-Brexit was that inevitably the Conservatives would reinvent as they've always done to meet that moment. But actually, they've not invented, reinvented themselves at all. Um, do, you have a, do you have a reason for that? Yeah, sure. I think it's partly the donor class. Um, I think it's partly the parliamentary party, which leans much further to the cultural left and the economic right and the voters they won over in 2019. I think it is the legacy of conservatism in Britain, the kind of high Tory tradition, which has always viewed the new cultural axis of politics as being low status and as yeah. being secondary to free trade, to slashing tax. And I think the Thatcherite influence still has been very negative. I mean, you know, again, just to go back to the book, one of the things that one of the, one of the big signs that many of my critics hadn't read the book is actually what I say about Thatcher. And, and the yeah. book is very, very negative, actually, about Thatcher and the Thatcher project. But, um, you know, this idea that I'm a sort of, you know, flag-waving conservative that uh, just wants to bash the left isn't true. But I think the Thatcherite tradition has really pushed the conservatives into a difficult place because path dependency in, in politics really matters. Like, from where you start will determine your eventual, your, your eventual destiny. 
And, and that's why I think the Conservatives have been completely unable to meet these new voters that they won over uh, in the middle, you know, levelling up. You had Southern Conservatives complaining about sending resources to constituents they won in 2019. I mean, it was remarkable. Immigration. The figures at the end of this month, May 2023, will most likely be somewhere around 700,000. Yeah. 700,000. It was 200,000 when David Cameron came into power. It was 300,000 before Brexit on big business. The first instinct of Conservatives post-Brexit was to deregulate the city and take off the cap on bankers' bonuses. Yeah. Right? I mean, that to me is a party that has no serious interest in recognising and responding to the reasons why people voted the way they did over the last 10 years. So I think philosophically, the Conservatives are lost. Electorally, they're in a very bad place. And I suspect politically, they are about to now enter some kind of internal civil war over who they are. And that will follow defeat at the next election. So one thing, um, as we draw to a close, one thing I wanted to um, get you to elaborate on was this. You've mentioned it in terms of hyperglobalization or John Gray's understanding of hyperliberalism, this mm -hmm. alliance between the new elite and big business, as you put it. So how does that alliance, I mean, how does that fit with the picture that you portray in the book of the new elite? Why is, why is it so complementary with the interests of big business and why has big business been so indulgent of the new elite? Well, I think there's, I think there's something of an alliance that's going on. Um, I think Piketty partly talks about this. I, I might take it a bit further, but I think essentially what we've now got in this country is an alliance between big business and the kind of new radical progressive left, which are converging on the same territory for different reasons. I think big business is clearly wanting to sustain and keep the status quo going to serve uh, the bottom line and to fuel profit. And I think the new graduate elite are sticking with the status quo to fuel their sense of moral righteousness and to continue to derive status from that. But neither have any serious interest in reforming um, or reshaping the political economy, um, you can see that in just, I mean, some of the utterly remarkable decisions that were taken under Boris Johnson, you know, the, the, the removal of the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs in Britain first. I mean, this is where the, the Boris myth is completely ridiculous, right? When you actually look at what he did, the liberalisation and the wholesale liberalisation of non-EU migration and international students, which in turn, as anybody could have told him at the time, has removed the incentive for universities and businesses to invest in non-graduate um, local uh, people and alternative routes into education, training and vocational qualifications. Why would you do that if you can depend on international migration from China and Nigeria and Zimbabwe, and, and you can rely on students paying three times the price. So yeah. the whole political economy of Brexit was kind of undermined by the choices that were taken really within a year 
of that 2019 general election. And those choices were taken really to try and sustain an economy that is now basically dependent upon consumption, which doesn't make anything anymore, which is not productive, which is the highest levels of regional inequality in the industrialized world, which now has close to 5 million people dependent upon out-of-work benefits, and which is continuing, as the latest Office for Budget Responsibility forecast show, is now continuing like a drug addict to keep itself hooked on mass immigration to try and plug the gaps. And this is where I just think morally our leaders are completely checked out. I don't care about immigration because of people coming from different countries. I care about it because it's clearly being used by big business and our political class to plug the holes that should be filled by reinventing and reshaping our political economy and giving people a sense of meaning and purpose over their lives. And as long as you're maintaining these kinds of levels, there's absolutely no incentive to do that. Now, if you compare and contrast Sweden with Britain, I don't agree with everything Sweden and and the, the Swedish Democrats have done, but the one thing I do agree with them on is they've now said, what on earth is the point of having salary thresholds for incoming workers that are below the average wage? What on earth is the point of that if you're not basically doing this to serve big business and fill holes in the economy? So they've upped the salary thresholds and they've basically stared down business and said, look, if you want cheap labour, you can rely on local Swedes or better yet, you can start to innovate and you can start to drive productivity. Has the, have the British Tories done that? No, they've not done that. What they've done is they've set salary thresholds at 26,000. The average wage is 33,000, or about 30K outside of London. Or in some sectors, they've reduced it to 20,000 pounds, right? Yeah. So why on earth would you, as a, as a business, take Next? Let's take Next and Lord Wilson as an example. Complains that he can't get workers in Rotherham, right? Yeah. But he, he ships them in from from Poland and Gdansk, um, why would he innovate as a business? Why would he become more productive? Why would he hire local Brits? Why would he get them onto decent training programs that will lead to higher pay over the longer term? Well, the answer is he can rely on, on politicians continuing to usher in mass immigration. Why do we have an NHS crisis? I mean, there's another, that's where it's most visible because we, our leaders decided it's, it's cheaper to import doctors from low-income countries than it is to increase the number of medical places for British kids to become nurses and doctors. So we now recruit about two, three times as many doctors um, and about half of our nurses from overseas, um, which, again, is morally dubious given where lots of those doctors are coming from, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria and elsewhere. Um, because we never really had the courage to have the more difficult debate about how we can increase and fund more medical places within our universities, right? Yeah. And this is constant short-termism, and, and immigration is a get-out-of-jail-free card, which comes with the added bonus for the new elite, because if you question it or you challenge it, you can just shut down the debate by calling anybody and everybody a racist. So you're never forced into challenging and confronting this broken economy because, you know, the social um, norms and the, and, 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 the, and the social language is, is set up in a way that any opposition can be neutralised. And Michael Lynn makes this argument, you know, very forcefully in The New Class War. And 
you know, he's spot on. You know, if you can reframe your opposition as Nazism, racism, and some form of phobia, you don't have any opposition. And that's basically where we are. So that takes me to um, the final question I wanted to ask you, or rather the penultimate one. But so what would a good night democracy or a good night political economy look like then, given the criticisms that you've made of the new elite and the failure of the Tories, um, big business and the model that it's run the country on? How would you how would you prefer to see things? Well, I think politically, you know, I don't I think, you know, on Twitter, it's pretty obvious to see that I'm pretty sympathetic to to where people like William Gladstone and, uh, and the SDP parties of the world are. I think I'm much more interested in thinking about how we can revive um, some industry in this country, how we can invest more seriously outside of the graduate class, how we can reform the institutions so we have a much wider range of voices, not within not just politics, but media, culture, creative industries. Uh, how we can invest far more seriously in our mid-level cities so that they look a lot more like mid-level cities across Europe that are more innovative, more dynamic, how we can start to put the interests of the national community ahead of big business and ahead of global um, global companies, how we can, um, I think, get much more aggressive at clamping down on um how our housing market is mainly used to prop up investors overseas. It's great to see Labour beginning to talk about that in this month, May 2023, but they've not gone anywhere near as far as they should do. Why should why should we allow foreign investors to own 50% of new housing developments in this country, which is where Labour goes? Why should we allow the Chinese to own 50% of an apartment block in Manchester? That's, that's utterly insane when we've got a housing crisis. And this is you know where I depart from... I think the established left and right, I think we just need to be much more radical in what we're doing in these areas um, and ultimately deliver on what I personally think the 2016 vote was about, which was building a much more balanced, non-London-centric economy that gives as much respect and attention to people outside of the graduate class as it does to people who belong to it. Um, and I, I, I think that's roughly where I am politically. I'm pretty, you know, left on some economic issues, and I'm would describe myself as moderately conservative on social and cultural questions. Um, and that's that's essentially where I am. Which, you know, I think would basically put me in the camp of a lot of old Labour people, and probably, you know, maybe traditional conservatives um, in a sort of Scrutonian even John Gray type tradition. I mean, I, I had very little time for what, you know, in the 1980s and I had even less time for what happened in the 2010s. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been great, Matt. And I just have one thing I'd like to ask you um, to finish on, which is what's your next project now that you've, you've mentioned this when we were setting this uh, discussion up and I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on next. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to have a break for a little, <laughs> a little bit of time because no rest for the wicked. Yeah, I think, as you know, with academia, you you can just get bumbled a lot. You know, you you can just kind of end up working all the time. And I think um, I think for me, at least, um, probably doing something that is a little bit outside of the area that where I've been working on. Um, I've just actually published this month. We're about to publish a book. 
uh, with Cambridge on the a sequel to our book on the Brexit vote in 2017. And this looks at how Brexit's been reshaping politics and electoral behaviour. Uh, it's more of an academic book than, than a trade trade book. But uh, I think that's my, my last book for a long, long, long while on um, British politics. And I'm enjoying... I'm enjoying writing for non-academic audiences um, because perhaps like you and your colleagues, I do think the public square is a much more interesting place to be, not only not only in terms of, um, you know, having a debate with people from different backgrounds, but intellectually, to be honest with you, it's a more interesting place to be. Okay. I often find that I get far more interesting questions from public events than I do from academic ones. Um, uh, so continuing with with some of that, I think will be interesting. But um, I don't have much of a desire to keep writing about British politics over the longer term. I think actually it's going to the next ten years are going to be quite depressing, um, looking at how this unfolds. Um, so it might be quite nice to do something slightly different. But we'll see. Well, it's been great having you on, Matt. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, and um, I'd like to wish you and your colleagues success with your with your with your own Brexit book, and I look forward to sharing it and joining discussions in the future. Thanks very much.